Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try and settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Well, your parents are moms too. The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you are or want to be an entrepreneur or small business person, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur and have counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources and to inspire you, make your journey as an entrepreneur faster and easier and maybe just a little bit more fun. To help with that, I have guests every week on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Tara Linda Willis. Tara Linda is the co-founder and CEO of Curate Solutions based in Madison, Wisconsin. Curate is a startup that makes local government data more accessible through its AI platform. Prior to starting Curate in 2016, Tara Linda earned an MBA in operations and project management from the UW-Whitewater. She began her career in project management by overseeing the construction of a $94 million multi-use facility for the state of Wisconsin. She's a very active member of her community and in fact was recognized as one of In Business Madison's 40 Under 40 class in 2020 for her board service, advocacy, and volunteering in both the startup and nonprofit worlds. And she says in the summer, you can find her sailing on Lake Mendota with friends in her free time. That is pretty fun, Tara, Linda. I uh, I did a little of that myself when I was a student at Madison. So with that introduction, Tara, Linda, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thanks for having me, Doris. So talk a little bit about your business. So briefly, what does Curate do and who's it for? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So Curate's a software platform. We aggregate municipal meeting data, and we use that data to help organizations uh, both monitor risk as well as find opportunities inside of the local government space. We work with a lot of um, Utilities is an easy one to understand. They're impacted by permit fees changing, which may seem insignificant, but if you think about the number of permits that they need to pull, even a $50 change could have some pretty significant gaps to their bottom line. And so we identify those. So if they want to get involved and share their side of the story, they're able to do so by finding early and actionable information from these municipal meetings. Interesting. So, you know, this is a niche kind of business that I would never have thought about. So how did you get the idea for this business? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, my background, as you kind of said in the intro, is in the construction space. And so that's where we started was looking at, you know, what's being discussed in some really small and hard to uncover places. So the business started looking at certified survey maps and rezonings and sewer line extensions, all kinds of kind of I call them boring behind the scenes pieces that indicated, you know, huge facilities that were going to be built. We've expanded that into lots of local legislation tracking, um, helping businesses see around corners when it comes to policy change. Interesting. So are there other competitors out there who do this or is this a new, totally new kind of offering? We're very new on the street for local legislation monitoring. There's a huge focus at the federal level, obviously, uh, at the state level, but at the state and federal levels are becoming more contentious and more difficult to um, see things passed. And so municipalities, as well as, you know, nonprofits and things like that are taking things into their own hands. So if they want change, they do it themselves at the local level. So that's both in terms of like their revenue and fees, as well as, you know, we work with uh, an organization focused on LGBT equality. And if they can't get it passed at the state level, they go community by community and make the make the change happen there. All right. So you explained how you got the idea. Talk a little bit about how you went from an idea to actually starting this business because lots of us have ideas right but actually turning it into a business is a whole different thing it is a different thing i agree i agree completely with that you know it's a little chaotic and i don't think anybody's journey in entrepreneurship is a linear one and ours is mine is no exception to that rule so you know, had the idea, understood the problem. And then really how this all got started is my husband was working on his PhD in computer science and he was sort of, he's always building. And we were just kind of looking for the right applications of what he's building and what I had known and put these pieces together. We thought it was cool. And we were accepted into the generator program, which for those of you who don't know, is a business accelerator program. Doris, I know you had Troy on the show a while ago, um, yeah. who's an advisor of mine. And that's really what kicked this into high gear that provided a little bit of funding to get this off the ground, um, as well as really, more importantly, the mentorship advice and connections and things like that to launch and grow. Well, I'm curious about the software side of things. I mean, you need to have software that trolling isn't the right word, but scanning at least that can go and and find different documents and analyze it. But you have to have access to all this stuff, too. So how I, I'm still struggling with how you put the pieces together to do this. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. It's very niche. and one of the things that makes us successful as an organization is that we're committed to staying in of our in our swim lane and under focusing on what we do really well and that's this local government piece so 
you know, our biggest competitor to this is people manually keeping track of as many communities as they can. But that when you're faced with some really damaging things that are going on, um, for example, in California, there's a, um, I know in Wisconsin, this feels really strange to say, but uh, natural gas moratoriums where they'll no longer allow new homes to connect to natural gas. Oh, if you're wow. a natural gas provider, that's really damaging. And so you have to, you have to stay on top of that. So we build the software that aggregates, I think we're in a little more than 12,000 municipalities across the country, focusing, you know, on towns with no stoplights in New York City and everything in between. And so with that, we get that data, we put it together, and we use a lot of AI or artificial intelligence in order to make sense of that data and be able to distribute it in a way that, you know, is actionable and people can use it. Uh, not everything that's talked about in municipalities is <laughs> necessary, maybe is the right way to say. <laughs> or even remotely interesting or intelligent possibly could be another adjective that you might use. I, I just know because, you know, we get my local city commission is on this local cable television station, right? And I tune in occasionally and I'm just like, who are these people? <laughs> what, what do they think they're talking about and what are they doing? But I digress, you know, but I'm sure they're unfortunately weeding through a lot of that. It's probably a huge time saver for people. Yes. And it allows them to look at committees and other information that you may, maybe you focus on city council, but you're not reading the minutes, you know, or you're not reading the plan commission. And so right. when we use technology, we're able to just gather all of that data. But we do have a little fun here as well. And we keep track of some crazy things that are said through our Twitter account called Citizens Unscripted, uh, <laughs> where people say some rather ridiculous things that we, uh, we, Try to keep names off to protect the innocent, oh, but we'll okay. the you got, you got me. You got to share a couple of them now that you've dangled that little tidbit in front of me. Well, one we just posted yesterday, actually, which is top of mind, is um, somebody came to the plan commission to complain about um, a landscaping business coming in. And the city, the plan commissioner asked, you know, oh, where do you, you know, are you the neighbor? Like, where do you live? And Nope, not the neighbor, but he drives past it on his way on his commute. And I was like, that's that's bringing NIMBY to a whole new level. That is someone I would say with too much time on their hands would be my, my read yes. on that. Oh, my goodness. All right, you've got to have another one to share because I'm sure there are just uh, – our ability as human beings to say dumb things is just – Almost boundless. Well, this is maybe six or eight months ago. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm forgetting exactly where this happened, but somebody came to city council in the middle of the pandemic to report that uh, chicken nuggets are so good that we should call <laughs> them saucy nugs. And he wanted an ordinance passed that said, like, this is how you refer to chicken nuggets or chicken wings. I'm like, I don't know. I, 
humanity is a funny, funny thing to try to understand. I'm sorry. I'm just laughing. You're right. I, I just, you know, one of my favorite expressions is 50% of the people are dumber than average. And I'm telling you, <laughs> the, the average is probably lower than, than we might like to think. But um, anyway, so those are those are funny, and I'm glad. It sounds like there's some humor fairly often in your, there is. your job out there because of because of the kinds of things that people get all excited about. Let to go back to your business and your journey. So you said you pull information from about 12,000 municipalities. I mean, obviously there's a lot more than 12,000 out there. So. How do you decide which municipalities to pull from? Is it just you're gradually building it to pull from more and more, or do you respond to what potential customers want, or some of both? Oh, a little strategy and a little magic. So we <laughs> we monitor every county across the country, and then we have a population threshold. You know, if if they have at least a four-way stop in town, we're monitoring it. It's probably the right way to say it. So you can think about that scale. There's lots of municipalities with, you know, 50 people, and they're not necessarily making a lot of decisions that impact a lot of businesses. So we focused on the ones that really could do some damage. Ah, uh, yeah, and I'm sure there's um, there's lots of county data too. Do you track that as well? We do, and some of those really, really itty-bitty municipalities, their information is rolled up into the county. And yeah. so the county would make the decision on behalf of a lot of those communities. You know, I'm just thinking that in terms of urban areas, sometimes those special purpose districts are the ones that actually, they actually make some pretty significant decisions. So do you monitor those as well? Yes, we do a lot of those. Um, that's something that we're grow we're continuing to grow on, but um, we have a lot of special districts, like special sewer districts and fire districts and water districts and all kinds of things. As we go across the country, they change name and authority and things like that. So we use uh, census data to make sure we're capturing Things and entities that are making decisions with taxpayer money, sort of the, the line in the sand of how we decide what we're going to do. We don't track like a homeowners association where it's yeah free to complain. <laughs> Probably the right <laughs> way to say it. Yeah, just imagining. I, I've been to a few of my homeowners association meetings. Anyway, well, so how, though, did you find your first customers? I mean, you had an interesting idea. But how did you know whether there were customers for it? Yeah, it certainly is an interesting journey. So I went out and had this idea. We had had a lot of the, you know, the backbone built. And we're just trying to find exactly the right application of some of the technology. And so, um, you know, presented the idea and had a few people that were on board. And then we really pushed into high year and building. So we built the business with our first customers, not in a, not necessarily in advance of our first customers, um. which 
isn't something that everybody can do because we had a lot of the foundation down, um, but not necessarily exactly the final piece. And, you know, while we've certainly made a lot of wrong turns and right turns, we're very customer focused. And that hyper focus on exactly what our customers need has allowed us to be successful. Well, so who are most of your customers and and how do you find your customers? Yeah, happy to answer that. So most of our customers are either businesses or associations who are impacted by changes in municipalities. So I'm in Wisconsin. We work with like the Wisconsin Realtors Association. We have a great relationship with them. Uh, we also work with the Home Builders Association. Um, even like the Farm Bureau, so things like that that are like association. And then we also work with um, larger organizations in retail, uh, utilities, telecommunications. You can think about all of the decisions that um, municipalities are making. Uh, I know a lot of with, you know, the COVID pandemic, there's been a huge focus on you know, mask mandates and capacity limits and making sure that you're following the rules or having some input on that, um, as well as everyday things like tax law um, can have a huge impact. So do customers find you or do you talk about the process of finding these customers? Yeah, every business owner, I think, starts with their network and we did something similar. We're certainly thrilled to have a partner like Generator who helps accelerate that growth in our network. And then from there, you know, we worked on understanding the things that are happening. And then we share that information with potential customers of, hey, did you know about this? Have Uh, you thought about this? (laughs) Um, Because we have a lot of data, um, we're able to do that. We still do some of that today, but now that we know, exactly the issues you know we don't have to necessarily dig in deep to get a conversation um bring people to the table so right. i myself stepped a little bit out of the day-to-day of sales um and that's handled by a few people on our team but i really enjoy showing the platform and what it can do and the power and i love people being like oh my gosh how do you get this information like this is what i do i read these I read these minutes, I read these agendas, I'm trying to stay on top of it, and this is amazing. You're finding things I can't find. Wow, that's what you love to hear from customers, right? So is your, talk about your basic business model. Is this a subscription service? Is this a project-based? How did you decide on your fee model? Yeah, pricing is such an interesting journey. It's like playing darts. You know, you, there's a lot of trial and error. So, yeah, I hopefully we're hitting the dartboard, but um, in all honesty, so we price it as a subscription model. Uh, So companies pay a yearly fee and the yearly fees based on, there's a few factors, but the primary factor is the geography that they're searching for. So each county in the U.S. has a different price to us, and that's prices based on population as well as number of municipalities. So that can range pretty wildly if you're looking at, you know, middle of nowhere, North Dakota, compared right. to Cook County in Chicago, which is has 140 municipalities and a huge population. Right. How has your business grown 
since 2016. Yeah, this year we're going to celebrate five years, which is mind-blowing to me, but I'm having a lot of fun. Congratulations. Good for you. <laughs> Thanks. So it's grown tremendously. So we've grown, obviously, with our customer base, but something that we don't talk about a lot is how it's grown in terms of like exactly what we're what we're doing in our focus you know and we started in this construction space but we have pivots the wrong word but like have a newfound focus on this on local policy change and that's really where we're spending a lot of time and energy um, in that side of the business it's interesting to me when you think about growth it's not just revenue, number of customers, number of employees. It's also like the business itself is a living thing and your customers <laughs> tell you what they need and what they want. And when I think about growth, I think about like how our customers interact with the software, what they, how they're able to click, how they're able to disseminate and find trends in the data. And that is really cool to me. It's probably a different answer to the question, but that's what I'm, where my head's at. Talk about how you found funding for this business, because that's a challenge that a lot of small businesses, most small businesses face. You mentioned Generator provided a little funding. Was that the main source of funding for you to get started? That was one of the key initial pieces of funding, um, and not a lot, but enough to launch is probably the right way to say it. And that's their focus is launching businesses and helping them accelerate their growth. Beyond that, Generator opened up their personal network of investors. And so we met with lots and lots and lots of people um, and made so many pitches. But um, as part of that, you know, you find people that believe in what you're doing. You know, maybe they have a a personal interest because of their, you know, legislation experience, because of their construction experience, or they're a developer in town, they know the pain, or they understand the space and really want to be part of the journey. Yeah. So it's not a, there isn't a magic formula other than it's not dissimilar to sales in that it's shots on goal, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you can't try if you're not, if you're not shooting. Wow. Well, it sounds like you pitched to a lot of businesses or a lot of potential investors. Talk about what you learned through the pitch process. Any advice that you, looking back, would share with other people who might be starting out looking for funding? Yeah, I'm happy to share advice. It's one of the more humbling experiences, asking people to believe in you and invest um, invest their own either personal money or their funds money into your business. I think that one of the things that I always think about is like, no is just as good as yes. <laughs> and that may not necessarily feel like it, but you're not wasting your time with someone who's not going to invest because people ask a lot, if you're going to evaluate an opportunity, you ask a lot of questions, right? And they, people should ask good questions. Right. And that's really time consuming. Um, yeah. But knowing that they're not going to be the right fit is incredibly important as well. Yeah. What did you learn about the pitch process as you went through more and more of them in terms of 
how to pitch, how to organize your story, or is that something Generator really helped you polish as well? Generator certainly helped with some initial polish, but I think the key is that, you know, you don't get feedback whiplash. And what I mean by that is, you know, everybody can give advice. And, you know, unless you hear it consistently several times, should you think about making a change or you agree with the change? But otherwise, all you do is change your pitch deck based on the last pitch you had. But like nobody knows the business like you do who's running the business. Right. And so keeping your eye on the ball, of like what you think is most important. And certainly if you, you know, I've had, you know, multiple times where like, oh, you should really think about including this in the pitch. And if you hear that three or four times, you believe it, do it. But right. if somebody says it once, like you could lose your life just modifying a deck. <laughs> it reminds me of being a new mom and every everywhere I went, people would offer their opinions on what to do with your child and how to handle certain situations. And uh, I started to lose my mind until I realized, you know, these people are just trying to be helpful and you just have to step back and say, does that make sense? No, that doesn't make sense. Or it might, I'm, you know, I'll put that in the, the parking lot and mull it over later, but you just kind of have to sift through all of it, right? That's right. That's exactly right. It's a great analogy. What would you say has been the hardest part about having your own business? Ooh, <laughs> um, that's a tough question. I think the hardest part is probably, you know, it's it's a humbling experience to build your own business. I also think it's very, it's very lonely mm -hmm. in that, you know, you're always trying to keep the team on track. You can't always share all of the information that you're getting all the time. You're the one source at the top. And I think that's probably the most challenging piece. And how I've dealt with that is built myself a, you know, a network of other founders running businesses who can, you know, you can rely on after a particularly bad pitch or a you had to let an employee go and it was challenging or you're yeah. struggling with a customer or whatever. And you can like really honestly and transparently share that information and get feedback when you need feedback and just have an ear to, to, to listen when you need that, that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the roadblocks you've faced as you have started and grown the company and how have you dealt with some of those? Oh boy, uh, we have plenty of road, <laughs> plenty of roadblocks. A common theme is just where do we put our time and resources as an organization? You know, for us, we try to be really conscious of the money that we've raised and to be really fiscally responsible. And so, making the right decisions with uh and keeping things lean. For example, you know, when do we make the next hire? You know, you don't want to hire too early and be less financially conscious with those funds. You also don't want to hire too late because your team's going to be real unhappy with you. And so trying to figure out the balance of hiring or 
where do we put our resources as a development team and what features or what are we going to build and how are we going to make those decisions can be really, really challenging on an ongoing basis. So maybe it's not a roadblock, it's a speed bump that comes up every <laughs> few miles. <laughs> There's just a lot of speed bumps and and crime scene tape and other sorts of little mini obstacles that go through, right? Yes, exactly. But yeah. it, I make this analogy to the team and that in a startup, things work until they absolutely 100% stop working. And it sometimes can absolutely blindside you. So I make the analogy that you're driving along on the highway and like out of nowhere is a brick wall. And like you see the brick wall as you're like smashing into it and it's not fast enough to change lanes or anything like that. And so then you all of a sudden you're on the highway and you've got to like pick up all the pieces and keep going. And so, uh, all over right. and over we do that. <laughs> So give me an example of one of those. Oh God, this one's painful. Um, so, you know, we've had a growth spurt in the last six months and pre-COVID, you know, employees were in the office and onboarding just like happened really naturally. Like there wasn't like a, it seems stupid to say out loud, but we didn't have like a concrete plan. People like they shadowed, they met people, they put pieces together, they got some direction, and it just worked. And then we had four or five employees start in an all-remote environment, and oh my God, it just stopped working. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was lack of direction, they didn't understand what the other teams did, because there was no, like, meat in the coffee and like, oh, what what are you working on right. today? Right. They didn't understand how their work fit into other um, people or how they got help when they needed it. And we just took all those things for granted that you can just sort of figure out yourself. So, I don't know, we hit the brick wall, the pieces are all over the highway, and <laughs> we, started putting, we started putting them back together. And now, and you have to do that, right? Maybe you could see those coming if you've done this a hundred times, but it surprised me. And so we took all those pieces apart built it back together, and now we have this amazing onboarding plan. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking that that's, I think, probably a great example of how sometimes an event causes you to have a, a, a small fender bender, maybe. I don't know. You may have felt like the pieces were all over the highway, but it sounds more like a fender bender to me in that from the long-term perspective, that is one of the things that businesses need to have in place, in my experience, to be able to scale effectively is to have those kind of processes mapped out and make them replicatable, if you will, without necessarily depending on any particular individual. I mean, you know, the reality is, is in a business, a lot of times there are people who are frankly the person everybody goes to. It's like, you know, oh, Susie will know the answer to that. You know, go ask Betty. She always knows that kind of stuff. And, you know, what you're talking about is really moving it from the personal to more of something that's systematic and a process that is repeatable, whether Tara Linda is there or not, right? Exactly. 
And it's a challenge figuring out when to put those processes in place, because if you need started running your business when there's five people, like there's a hundred people, you'd, <laughs> you'd all just build process all day and you'd never do anything. So it's, you know, it it's one of those things where like, you have to wait until it's, it's necessitated to, you know, get those, some of those things done. Absolutely. All right. Well, Tara Linda, I have to ask you to hold your thoughts for just a second. We're going to take a quick break for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. But stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Tara Linda Willis, the co-founder and CEO of Curate, based in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to The Savvy Entrepreneur. This week, our guest is Tara Linda Willis. She's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Curate based in Wisconsin. Tara Linda, you were talking before the break about some of the hardest things about running a business and some of the challenges that you've dealt with. Talk now about the best part about having your own business. Yeah, I was hoping you would ask me about the good side. Um, well, so, there's, good, there's goods and bads about, you know, about running your own business, it seems to me. So we talk about both. Yeah. You know, when I first started, a lot of people told me it's like riding a roller coaster and the, the highs will never be more high and the lows will never be more low. And it's 100 percent true living and breathing in this for the last five years. So I think some of the best parts are being able to see my ideas just come to life. You know, I get to come to product meetings and we share ideas. And that afternoon, a few days later, a few weeks later, you have the opportunity to see exactly what you conceptualized and somebody took it and put it into action. And I just, that's one of the most amazing things that I, I find is like being able to see that vision come come to life is just inspiring to me. And I also love to see the growth of the team and the growth of our customers and the things that they've been able to do with Curate. Um, we get so excited when people have a win with Curate because that's that's why we do this. And so those highs are just incredible. Well, let's talk about a win with Curate. Sure. So, you know, a lot of our customers pride themselves on having exceptional relationships with the, you know, city council members and things like that in their communities. So it's inspiring to me when we're able to find something when they say, oh, I just had lunch with so-and-so and he didn't say anything, or I just met her, you know, we just were on the phone with her and she didn't say anything. But like we're able to uncover some of that information of things that are happening in the Ooh. agendas and minutes. And oftentimes it's not, you know, it's not necessarily something that seems, you know, at the onset like huge. But for example, um, one we just had, we have a company that we work with in Florida where solar is really a huge thing, especially like big utility scale solar projects. And we do a lot to support solar. Um, solar, it's a little baffling to me, but can be a little contentious. It doesn't generate any um, jobs, right? You build the solar farm and that's it. It's not the same as some other types of investments. So they, the community was talking about changing the permitting structure 
and process for utility scale solar. And that's a community that they, this group already had a utility scale solar project in. They thought they had great relationships and they were still surprised. And they, you know, were planning on doing more. And so it's things like that where like, if they, if that community changes the um, approval process, could be significantly more time, more money to get approved, and it would really slow down their growth in their process. So mm -hmm. those are the kinds of wins that we find. So not having the ordinance change on how they get approved is a huge win to our customers. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but that's that's obviously, it's not just data about decisions that are made, but it's maybe the ability sometimes to get intelligence to head off an unfavorable or undesirable decision, right? Exactly. So you didn't talk about your co-founder. <laughs> who, who is the co-founder and what's the relationship there? Sure, uh, happy to. So he's next door in our home office. Uh, <laughs> my co-founder is Dale Willis. Um, so Dale was, working on his PhD in computer science at UW-Madison and had the idea for Curate, was accepted in the generator program, left his PhD program uh, to focus exclusively on Curate. We work incredibly well together. He leads the technical team um, as well as product and loves to build things, just gets super excited about it. Wow, that is a real tribute because it is hard enough to find a spouse, right, that with a marriage that works. It is equally difficult. A lot of people have said finding a business partner is basically like a marriage. And I can attest to having had uh, some very ill-chosen business partners, I can totally attest to the fact that it's difficult. So kudos to you and your better half for finding not only the ability to to have a successful marriage, but but be able to work together, not just founding a business, but being in the business together. I'm sure it's a I'm sure it's a source of a, of a lot of a lot of pride between the two of you. Yeah, we're incredibly proud of what we built. We're also each other's you know biggest cheerleaders, and I thrilled to do this every day with Dale. Wow, good for you. So you, you mentioned the roller coasters. When there's a down, where do you find inspiration? It's a great question. There are lots of downs. I often look to the team for inspiration. You know, what we're doing is challenging. There's no playbook. Nobody really knows exactly what the right answer is. And so you know, when we're having a down, I often rely on the team and get their input and feedback on, you know, what we should do, where we should go. Um, I also, I hired a business coach, ah. which wasn't something that I thought was necessarily a key part of growing the business, but it's been incredibly helpful. You know, it, it's almost like a business therapist in some cases of, <laughs> you know, keeping your head on the right path and like it, you know as you're irritated or frustrated about something can really give some really good perspective as well as direction in how to solve problems it is challenging 
when you are a small business owner because most of us are good at certain things, but we're none of us are good at everything. And so it's sometimes challenging to, to spot those blind spots and really look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I'm not very good at this. I have to figure out how to, if not get better at it, I need to find somebody who can do this, who does it better than me because I'm, because it's just not my strength. And, you know, that's a, it's a tough process and kudos to you for, you know, doing the unflinching look in the mirror and say, these are things I need help with. Yeah. Growing a business is a very humbling experience. It's probably my common theme here. Uh, and <laughs> you have the opportunity to really take a look at yourself and not just what do I like to do, but what do I need to do and what can I, how can I surround myself with the right people either on your team or through a network of advisors. Right. In fact, that's a great segue to my next question, which is where do you go for for help? I mean, what where have you found in terms of resources that are are great to tap into when you had challenges? No shortage of challenges over here. So uh, <laughs> you know, places where I tap into. Um, so I, I've intentionally, as a first-time founder, surrounded myself with people who have specific expertise in a variety of places. And it's a little harder these days, but I do my best to stay in close contact with people who I think would could either answer questions I have today or tomorrow or in a few years. Um, and really, so, some of these informal advisors have been incredibly helpful when things the going gets tough or we get stuck on something. Um, you know, there's some consultants that we hire as well as just other entrepreneurs who are further ahead than I am or people in the community who have been helpful and lent their ear or their advice. It sounds almost like you have a um, an informal board of advisors. Would you say that's that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I 100% agree. I also have a formal board that jumps in and is very helpful, but the board of advisors, it answers like very specific questions. It's not like they all get together or anything, but uh, um, just having those one-off conversations when I need them is so incredibly valuable. Where would you like the business to be in say five years? What will Curate look like? Do you have a crystal ball? Because I'm still waiting on mine to show up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when I find it, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket. Just kidding. <laughs> but to answer your question, you know, there's a lot of directions this what we're doing can go. You know, we've been very hyper-focused on the intersection of municipalities and the impacts to businesses. And that's where we intend that's where 100% of our focus is going, more than 100%. And so we've built ourselves into the leading aggregator of municipal meeting data. And my focus right now is to continue to grow that. Um, municipalities are becoming more powerful as things become more contentious at other levels of government. And so we see every day more changes that could be either good or bad to businesses. And I don't see that in any way 
slowing up in the next several years. So that's where our focus is. Do you think you'll ever get tired of working in the business? And if so, is what else might you do? Um, you know, not every day is full of sunshine and puppies is probably the right way to say it. <laughs> I, I say sunshine and rainbows and unicorns, but same thing. Yeah, exactly. But today I love what I do. At the end of the day, I'm thrilled. I work really hard on this business. You know, I happily answer emails and slack messages you know late at night and early in the morning and that's this is where my focus is this is where my passion is and you know i think there's a lot that we still can do with the business and that's where i'm putting my time and attention someday in the future maybe i'll spend more time sailing but uh for now i'm really happy doing what i'm doing so looking back what advice would you give to your younger self about starting and growing a business? Oh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, well, I'll turn it around and just say what, I'm sure you have other entrepreneurs who are starting out who ask you and what advice do you give them? Yeah, the advice that I focus on a lot when I'm, you know, and I do a decent amount of just informal mentoring to other entrepreneurs starting out. And really the advice that I give to them is to focus on customers and really like stop building and do more talking or listening, listening, not talking, because that really helped us be successful. I think we did a lot of that we didn't even do as much as I think we could have done. And that's probably something we would have done differently going back is even a more of a hyper focus on customers. That's exactly where we started, but never taking that, you know, what's going on in some of your customers world for granted. And so always setting up more conversations and more check-in meetings and being able to have that really close contact so that you're a hundred percent always building the right features. Great advice. Well, one last question before I let you go. If people are interested in Curate or maybe they're interested in something that you talked about today, maybe just chatting with you and shooting the breeze about their business, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. My um, my full name is Tara Linda Willis, so you're welcome to connect with me there on LinkedIn and also reach out through our website, which is curatesolutions.com. Uh, I will make a plug that we are in a hiring push. I think we have four positions posted. So as a team of 20, uh, we're very actively growing and so trying to find the right people to help us grow is something we're very focused on right now. If people are interested in learning more about those, where should they go to your website? Yep, we have a careers page on our site. Daryl, Linda, thanks so much for being with me today and taking a little time to talk about your business and your journey as an entrepreneur. It was really a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Well, we have just enough time left today to talk about an issue that I've seen crop up with a couple of clients recently, and it's a topic where they might have saved themselves a bunch of heartache and certainly a lot of legal fees, 
And that is something called uh, an operating agreement, which you really need to have if you have two or more founders. Um, in both cases with these clients, uh, they had business partners and there was no operating agreement. And it caused a lot of a lot of issues. So first of all, what is an operating agreement? Hopefully most of you know, but maybe some of you don't. And for those of you who don't, an operating agreement is basically uh, a set of ground rules for how the business is going to operate in a whole variety of different situations. It's often one of those things that gets pushed to the side. You know, when you're starting a business, you're usually going into business with somebody you know, maybe for a long time. And you're thinking you trust each other. Obviously, you wouldn't go into business together otherwise, right? And you really should have a lawyer help you draft a good one. Um, online templates, in my experience, just really don't cut it. But um, lawyers are expensive, right? And most startup companies have a lot of things they need to spend money on and not enough cash. So it's one of those things that often gets pushed to the side and one thing leads to another and just never gets done, um, either because the owners didn't know about it or they just thought it would never be an issue. But, um, you know, I, I did a little research and depending on the study, between 50 and 80% of business partnerships fail. And when they fail, things are usually not nearly as rosy as they were when you started out. A lot of people compare business partnership to a marriage, and uh, that's consistent with my experience with business partners. And we all know some marriages end pretty contentiously, even when both are good people. And the same is true for business partners when things don't end well. So think of an operating agreement as sort of a business prenup. It helps avoid disputes because things have already been anticipated and set out in black and white. Things like who pays the debts of the company, how are the company's assets divided. And, you know, even if a business is successful, and maybe especially if it's successful, it eventually will be sold or maybe one or both or all of the owners will want to move on and transfer ownership. And so are there restrictions on transferring ownership? Should the other partner or partners be able to have say so over who becomes a new part owner? Should they have the right to buy the other partner out? At what price? I, um, I had a client a while back that had a very profitable auto body and repair and paint shop business and it was owned by two partners and sadly one of the two owners unexpectedly passed away they had no operating agreement and under the laws of the state as part of um, uh, the inheritance laws the partner's ownership passed to his wife because there was no operating agreement saying anything different and the wife unfortunately felt that her deceased husband would want her to carry on in the business. I, I guess that's not the unfortunate part. The unfortunate part is she didn't have much of a flair for the business. She drove her new business partner crazy. Key employees started leaving, clients started, clients started walking. 
And by the time the remaining partner came to me, the once profitable business was a shell of what it had been. Um, it was worth a whole lot less and uh, things were pretty ugly. And that's just one sad story. <clears throat> and it doesn't even involve an angry split up. The business could have been saved and a lot of anger, heartaches and legal bills avoided if only there had been a good operating agreement in place. It's much easier to set up a win-win exit strategy in, in advance when things are going well than after the emotions are high and people feel burned by their former best friend and business partner. Now, state laws often provide default provisions. So if there's no operating agreement, it defaults to state law. And you might think, well, why not just go with those? State law should be good, right? Well, they might work fine, but they often play out in unfortunate and unexpected ways. For example, several states provide that if there's no operating agreement, the partners in the business share ownership 50-50 and they share the assets and liabilities 50-50. Now, if you're a 50-50 partnership or a third, a third, a third, I, I, that may work out fine. But it doesn't work so well if contributions haven't been equal. Another good reason to do an operating agreement is to limit liability. Partnerships and limited liability companies, LLCs, you might know them as, are created to shield the owners from corporate liability. And both forms are more likely to be ignored than a corporation. So it's really important for both types of entities to follow corporate formalities to protect the partners from personal liability in the business. And a good operating agreement also just sets out how the company will operate and various roles and responsibilities. My best tip for writing an operating agreement or something like it is to come up with an exhaustive brainstorming session, all areas of the business that might need to be addressed, even unlikely things, even the most mundane things. The core elements of a good uh, operating agreement should include provisions related to um, equity structure, contributions made by the partners, how profits, losses, and distributions will be handled. There should be provisions for management decisions and things like the accounting methods to be used, how voting will occur and um, on different kinds of issues, legal stuff like limitations of liability and indemnity, how the books and records will be handled, as well as governing law and dispute resolution. Importantly, it should also address any restrictions on the transfers of share or ownership in the company, buyouts, what will happen upon dissolution and liquidation, and things like restrictive covenants, what if you part ways on unhappy terms? Can either of you then go work for a competitor? or start up a competing company? Make sure to have a good lawyer help you. As a commercial lawyer who works with small businesses, I do these frequently for clients. You know, those cheap templates out there are tempting and they are a decent place to start to get you thinking about the issues, but they should never be used as a final version. And I say that very sincerely, whether you come to me for help or not. 
Templates are cookie cutters, and unless your business is a cookie cutter too, in which case I don't know if you'll make it, uh, but if your business isn't a cookie cutter, then that's probably not the final product that's right for you. And when it's final, make sure you have all the partners sign it. And probably just as importantly, make sure to review it regularly and update it as needed. An operating agreement that was great when it was first signed, but no longer reflects what the current business partners want anymore is not a good operating agreement anymore. Well, that's our show for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to our special guest this week, Tara Linda Willis, the founder, co-founder and CEO of Curate Solutions based in Madison, Wisconsin. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, globalocityservicesplural.com. There's a library there of blogs, tools, podcasts, and other free resources. And because this show is for you, my door is always open for comments, questions, suggestions, or just to shoot the breeze. You can email me at dnagel at lakesradio.org. I promise you'll always get an answer back from me. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday, 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern time. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.